I think great literature is not safe. I would encourage you to read the book. It's very beautiful. It's very powerful. And it's not safe. It's not safe literature. It will draw you in. And it will expose the deepest human experiences, including the beauty of the grace at the end. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Songs for the Silent Passage is a collection of essays exploring Walt Wongren Jr.'s body of literary work. The essays were written by his friends and colleagues at the Chrysostom Society, including Eugene Peterson, Lucy Shaw, John Wilson, and Philip Yancey. The book was recently published by Rabbit Room Press. It was edited by Matthew Dickerson and Ann Doe Overstreet. Matthew Dickerson is my guest for this episode of the Habit Podcast. He's a computer science professor at Middlebury College in Vermont, but he also teaches literature and creative writing, besides being a novelist. All right, Matthew Dickerson, thank you so much for making time to be on the Habit Podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. So you are one of the editors. You, you and, um, and Ann Doe Overstreet uh, edited Songs from the Silent Passage, kind of a, a volume of, of essays honoring Walt Wangren. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the goal was really to explore the literature, to explore Walt Wangren's, Wangren's literature mm-hmm. um, more than just uh, to, you know, to honor him. Although I hope, I hope you know, the, the book does it. I think his his body of literature is so extensive and so worthwhile um, that we really hope the book brings um, some attention and some deeper understanding and deeper appreciation mm-hmm. of that work. Tell me how this uh, how this book came to be. And how you got the job of being the editor of this book? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, you know, it's it's been a, a, quite a while in the works. I think probably the the seed for this this project came seven or eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a member of a group of writers uh, called the Chrysostom Society, and um, Walt Wangren was one of the founders of that group. But because of his uh, cancer, he had not been active. Um, during the 10 years that I have been a member of, it, of mm-hmm. the group. Um, he's only been able to come once in my 10 years. Um, but the, the, one of the things we've done as a group is, is co-written a few books. Mm-hmm. And I, I think um, we had had a couple come out and we were looking at potential projects that we could collaborate on. And I just suggested this this project, I thought it would be a nice collaborative project because mm-hmm. the breadth of Walt Wangren's uh, writings, you know, pastoral literature and, um, and, and fiction of a variety of different genres, yeah. modern novels and medieval heroic um, epics and, and mm-hmm. myth and fairy tale and poetry and children's literature, that uh, a collection of essays exploring some of these different aspects of his writing would be a great collaborative project for a, a, a broad group of writers like the yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. society. So I suggested it and there was, and there was enough interest to begin to begin to pursue it. Hmm. By the way, the Chrysostom society, uh, do y'all like meet once a year? What, what does that organization even look like? Uh, yeah, we, we have one gathering per year where the 
in person, uh, assuming there are no pandemics going on at the time, we would gather for a four day weekend um, Mm. every year just to be in person. But then there's um, frequently other um, informal times over the course of the year when Mm -hmm. subgroups might meet or um, different ones of us will, will be participating in the same event or same conference. Um, uh-huh. I've visited mem- many other members of the society. I've run writing conferences and had them come up as guests. But yes, we we meet once once a year for about four days. Uh-huh. Um, we will have times of just sharing our lives with each other, just being open, um, vulnerable, and real. Uh, mm-hmm. Times of um, I always describe it as encouragement. Times of collaboration. Mm-hmm. And also opportunities just to share what we're currently working on or have currently completed with with one another. And you can seek feedback um, if you want. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you all have that. It's been very significant and and encouraging and challenging for me as a writer Mm -hmm. to meet with this group of people. All writers of Christian faith of a variety Mm -hmm. of different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a great group of writers. Um, And, uh, Many of whom contributed to to this collection. How many how many uh, contributors were there to this collection? Uh, well, if you count the the forward and the afterward, um, we had eight contributions, uh-huh. eight chapters. Mm-hmm. Well, in your essay, uh, Matthew, you talk about the idea that um, as writers, we often tell the same story mm-hmm. over and over again. You know. Um, and so I'd like to hear you talk about what, what is the story that Walt Wongren was telling over and over again? I, 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 when I say that, I, I don't say that in a dismissive way. I'm not trying to reduce it, reduce his literature. I actually, um, that expression came from a favorite songwriter of mine, Mark Hurd, um, the late Mark Hurd. I think he, he passed away, um, almost 30 years ago. And he was saying to a friend of his once, ah, I just write the same song over and over again, which, which is an oversimplification. But there are mm-hmm. certain themes yeah. that do appear frequently in his songs. And he explores them with different characters and different imagery. But it's, just, it's the same theme. And, and, um, and, and I think there are certain themes that, that do reappear frequently in um, Walt Wangren's uh, writings. And there's the one that I explored in my chapter um, there's really three different stories. One told as a sort of fairy tale myth. One story told as a, um, a medieval legend, and one told as a mix of a modern novel interwoven with the Greek myth. Mm-hmm. Um, and those those three three books: his novel of Saint Julian, his um, the Book of Sorrows, and his the Orphean Passages. And I think those three, there, there really is a, a common theme, not just a common theme, almost a common story that he retells in three different ways. And it is, um, it's a story of, um, it's a story ultimately about grace, but it is also a story about how sometimes before we are able to understand or accept grace, um, sometimes we have to go through times of, of what Wangren calls the, a silent passage, a time when we, we, we don't, we're not aware of God. We don't hear God. We don't think God is present. Um, we don't think we're experiencing, uh, we're, we're experiencing God. We feel abandoned. 
maybe um, maybe that's part of it. I think also part of it, and these go hand in hand, is is this um, maybe desperate need or desperate attempt to earn a grace or to be worthy of grace, which of course we we can't be. We can't earn it. We can't by by nature, by definition, we can't be worthy of grace. It wouldn't be grace if we had earned it. Yeah. Um, and so all three of these stories are in some ways tales of characters who desperately want to be worthy of love and grace and recognize they're not and also go through times where they they just don't think God is listening to them or God is there or God is present. Um, God's not answering their prayers the way that God, they want God to. Yeah. I'm, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to make some connections. And I think you might be able to help. Um, the idea of a, of a character earning, you know, proving their worth or, or earning favor, um, that is a, that's a way to structure a story, right? Sure. And it is a, you know, you think about stories that are, that are focused on a hero's glory, for instance, you know, that, that's a, a viable way, an engaging way um, to tell a story. Um, and then there are stories of grace, which I think are a little, it's a little harder to tell those stories in ways that are compelling. Um, that, to say that it's harder, that, that may be, that may or may not be true, but we, maybe we can talk about that too. Um, and then there is um, the, the way you talk about Wangren's stories. They, they go so dark before, or they often go so dark before the, before the grace. Uh, yeah. At least the, have the stomach for it. At least the three stories that I just spoke about, you know, yeah. um, St. Julian and the book of sorrows and the orphaning passages. And I think you can add the book of the Dun count of that list too. In a different way. I think, um, I think there's some slightly different, different character arcs. Uh-huh. Um, in that as well. I, I don't think, yeah, I mean, I don't think Chanticleer goes through the same thing in the Dun Cow that he goes through in the sure. Book of Sorrows. Uh, but yes, right. there is an element in, in the Dun Cow story as well. But in those three, yes, I, what you said is absolutely correct. There, there is the, the, just the darkest of times of, 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 I would use the word sorrow, just deep, deep sorrow and loss. Um, and it is in that, in or out of that deepest loss, that um, they there there is an an understanding of how deep grace is, and an understanding of how imp, how impossible it is to earn or to yeah. be worthy of, and 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 how wonderful it is then when we when we do receive it. But yeah, you don't get there quickly. You don't get to that. <laughs> you don't get to that yeah. moment of grace uh, easily. Um, yeah. I think it'd be like if the whole gospel of, of um, you know, the whole gospel story took place in Peter's life between the denial yeah. and the resurrection. If you expanded right. that outward. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Not the resurrection, but the restoration. It's even more. It's like oh, the, uh-huh. you know, yeah, from, yeah. from Peter's denial, not just to the resurrection of Jesus, but, but to when he really feels restored to that relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of that darkness, which is then redeemed by, by grace, I, I, I was thinking about um, Wangren's five rules for, uh, for, 
five covenants for Christian writers yeah. that he that he gave to his um, to his creative writing students, and, and the first one was um, which Jim Scop explores in yeah, in his yeah. in his chapter in this in our book. Yeah, he explores those. Yeah. Um, right. That's right. That's how I know the five rules. I just didn't know them off the top of my head. Uh, but yeah, general reality, I promise to be true to what I see around me, to what I know by my own faculties, my sense perceptions, my experience, my sense of truth to be the world as we know it. Uh, I wonder if I, I might have a typo in there somewhere. Anyway, but the idea that that we that commitment to uh, to to see what we actually see and not what we're supposed to see. I think is so important yeah. to good storytelling. And I, and I think that's such a big part of, of how Wangren, mm-hmm. you know, tells his stories because as a pastor, as a parent, as a, you know, there's so many, so many ways that he's, he's been in the trenches with people, you know, and, and seeing grace come out of that, but, but not always, it's not always easy to see. No, uh, but, but the, the, you know, the, the term trenches, right. Is, is accurate. I mean, um, there, there is a lot of time that a lot of us spend in, in, in those trenches. Uh, yeah. and you know, if you, if you really follow through on that metaphor and you think of the soldiers in the trenches in war, they don't have the bird's eye view. They don't have the general's view. Yeah. They don't necessarily see anything good that's coming out of their being in that trench. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't see the picture of the whole line of the front. They don't see what they're defending. They just see the mud yeah. and the, and the refuse in the trench yeah. with them. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think Did you see a, the movie Dunkirk. Hmm? Did you see the not, movie Dunkirk? No. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's one of those movies that is so close in on the soldier's point of view that you've got Dunkirk, such a great, great story when you see it from a distance. Um, you know, when you get some critical distance from it, it's such a wonderful story. And in this movie, you know, you see what it's like to be the soldier and it's not especially glamorous no. or exciting. <laughs> I, I just re rewatched the um, Tolkien biopic. Um, uh-huh. A lot of which takes place in the battle of Psalm with Tolkien in the, in the trenches. So that imagery mm-hmm. was still fresh. Yeah. Your first um, one of those, you know, uh, of those five principles um, for the writer. It, it makes me think of an old comic strip um, that we still joke about often in my family. I don't even remember where I first saw it, but it's it's sort of a, a little poking fun at the way Sunday school often happens. And, uh-huh. and, you know, people are looking at a picture and the Sunday school teacher says, well, what do you see in the picture? You know, little Tommy. And he says, well, it looks like a squirrel, but I'll say Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. right, we, we we give you this answer that we think is this spiritual or correct or appropriate answer, and and you know, in some ways, the translation of that first principle is if if what you see is a squirrel, describe the squirrel. Yeah, don't try to turn that yeah. squirrel into this rosy picture of Jesus. And if and if what you see is a world full of pain and suffering and, and loss, um, that that's what you describe, and that's that's the true scene that you're that you're giving. Yeah. Um, you so speaking of sort of dark stories, you in your essay you describe this. You know, you, you said it took you more than a year to write your chapter of yeah. this book, um, and part of that delay came from your unwillingness, if that's the right word, to re-engage with St. Julian. 
Right? No, that's it, the right it, word. Definitely. A, <laughs> a, a difficult book. Um, and you said, I, I like the way you put it. You said, the reason you didn't want to engage with it was largely because it was so beautifully told. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, it's, it is so fully engaging yeah. that it's really painful mm-hmm. to um, a poorly engage. told story, a poorly written story. Um, a, a poorly captured character is not going to move me so deeply. I'll be sitting yeah. on the outside, just looking at a badly painted picture and, and, and never really so fully drawn into mm-hmm. um, the depths of the emotion of the character but because it's so beautifully written and so beautifully told it, it, it packs a tremendous amount of emotional power. There, there are a few stories that are like that for me. Um, mm really, really beautiful and moving, but which I know if I go back to reread, it's going to take a lot of emotional energy. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I think passages from um, uh, Norman McLean's a river runs through it. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, gosh, yeah. Do that for me. Um, there's a yeah. scene I've been teaching Tolkien's writing for 30, 30 plus years. Um, and in fact, I'm, tomorrow is my last class this semester on, on, um, a Tolkien class I've just been teaching. Mm. And in 30 years, I, there's, there's one, one scene, one passage I almost never teach because it's so moving. And I don't go as beautiful as I think the Silmarillion is. I don't often go back. I know it's going to take me a certain emotional energy to reread this particular mm-hmm. passage, this particular chapter of it, because it's so beautifully told, but also so deeply um, sorrowful. Uh, and so I, I knew I had, I had to, I'm going to have to enter into with a certain amount of emotional energy to reread Julian and to try to understand it and write about it with authenticity. And, yeah. and so I, there was a resistance to going yeah. back in and, and reentering that story to write this chapter. Well, I started thinking about when you were talking about, about what you were just talking about, I started thinking about roller coasters yeah. and the idea that I, I get this thrill, I get this, I get to be afraid when I really know I'm okay, yeah. right? The, the roller coaster is not really going to go off the rails. No. It just sort of feels like it is, you know? And um, I mean, I know sometimes roller coasters come off the rails, but not very often. And so, you know, I have this, it's this safe way to feel that thrill. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like maybe you're talking about a kind of story. And, and I think maybe a slasher film is, is another one of those, you know, I get to sort of, I, well, I don't watch a lot of slasher films, but I think the idea is I get the thrill of that kind of danger without, you know, without really entering, as you said, but they, I'm not really entering into it because it's not really beautiful. Right. And, and it sounds like you're saying a book like St. Julian, you are entering into that um, in a way that that's not as safe as a roller no. coaster. No, I, I think great literature is not safe. Um, and, and, you know, when I, when I say this, no, no one should think that I'm trying to discourage you from re- reading the book. I would encourage you to read the book. It's very beautiful. <laughs> it's very powerful. It is beautiful. And it's not safe. Uh-huh. It, it's not safe literature. It will draw you in. And it will expose, I think, the deepest, the deepest human experiences, including the beauty of the grace at the ending. Right. The beauty yes. of the restoration, the beauty of the way that Julian experiences yeah, grace. Okay. And, and, and it's through the story. It's, it's throughout the story. He experiences grace um, mm-hmm. from his parents, from his wife. Um, there's, there's, there's grace throughout it in really beautiful, powerful ways. 
but he's, he's unable to accept that because he doesn't feel worthy of it until the very end. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I highly recommend the story because it, because it's not safe. Um, but you don't, you don't go and sit and re reread it every three weeks or every five weeks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I agree. It is a, it is a beautiful, beautiful book. And, um, I haven't had the courage to, to go back into it. <laughs> if I had known what I was getting into when I first read it, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I might, you know, I might not have done it. But again, it sounds like we are unrecommending that book. We're, we are recommending that. We are recommending book. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and th- I think this, this maybe um, is a nice lead in to what, um, is it Tom Scott that, that, uh, Am I saying it's Jim, Jim, the, James, I'm Scott. Sorry. Yeah. Jim Scott. Yeah. yeah sorry. Um, and, um, and he talks about this idea of singing and preaching yeah. as being two different things. Um, and that somehow Wongren manages to sing as he preaches mm-hmm. and preaches, he sings. And, and um, he says, traditionally there's something about art that won't hug a pulpit. I love that. <laughs> that sentence. Art suggests, it entices, it begs our participation in process. Preaching clarifies the straight and narrow. Art shows us a world. Preaching shows us the way. Art asks the questions that, grandly enough, have no clear answers and takes great joy in doing just that. Sermons answer those questions. Art wonders. Sermons try not to. It's coming down pretty hard on sermons, it, it sounds like, in that, um, in that passage. I don't think that it's a critique of sermons. What it is, is a critique of, of artists who try to turn art into sermons. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's where the problem is. If you, if you, uh, if you confuse them, if, if you, if you, here's the way I, when I'm teaching creative writing, the way I would express something similar to that, I would, particularly if I'm teaching creative writing in a, in a context of um, maybe a uh, Christian conference where I think the writers are sadly are more inclined to want to preach yeah. because I, I teach at a lot of um, non-religious or secular venues as well. Um, mm-hmm. But I think in that religious context, there's more of a temptation to preach. When I tell what I tell those in my workshops is if you are, um, if you really have a sermon, you really want to preach, don't write the story, yeah. get the sermon out of the way. And then come back and write the story because in the story, the characters, the setting, the, the, the plot really has to move it. It can't just be a thinly veiled um, sermon. Yeah. And so yeah. I think some of the, the, the power of, of wandering is that it, it really is deeply moving and deeply theological and, um, you know, deep, profound themes in it. But you never, they're never coming at you in abstractions. They're not coming at you yeah. in moral, in, in just principles. They're all, yeah. they're all incarnate. They're all embedded in real flesh and real blood and, and real people that you care about, which is why they're so moving. Right. I could yeah, have the question a, is never, do you assent to this proposition? Yes. But rather, yeah. can, can you experience this, this scene that I'm presenting. Exactly. Uh, I could sit and have a conversation with you about, um, you know, abstractly about grace and, and suffering and, and it's not going to choke me up. But if we mm-hmm. sit and really at, if you, if you, you know, force me in this, in this interview to sit and re- you know read 
some of the passages from um, either any of those three books or from the book of the Dun Cow or the passage in the Silmarillion I was just talking about or certain mm-hmm. passages in a river runs through it. All of a sudden, I wouldn't be able to have the conversation with you with this yeah. abstract, you know, uh, unemotional, intellectual disagreement yeah. or agreement. I, I would I would point out, by the way, that, the, you know, that Jesus is teaching is so often in the form of stories that's more like singing and less yeah. like and less like preaching. Um, yeah. The, the parables, Jesus's parables are, you know, bottomless pits or bottom, not bottomless, pit, bottomless wells, <laughs> not a bottomless pit. That's where <laughs> a bottomless well of, um, okay. of, of, of nourishment that you can keep going back to again and again and approach in so many different ways because they are incarnate stories. Yeah, and Wanger and yeah. I think Wangren's like that. Her stories are are real and true and powerful, and and yet you know really deep. Mm-hmm. Which you know, I mean, I, as I always say to to Christian people who are writers, you know, if you believe that the world is shot through with meaning, you know, you don't have to add meaning to it. It's not your job to make meaning right. to insert meaning. But right. You're safe to safe. We just about. Well, we were just being down on safety a minute ago, but but it is. Let, let's let's just borrow that word. You, you're you're safe to tell the truth, but what you've actually seen in the world, yeah. yeah, the world really is meaningful. That's right. We don't we don't have to be afraid um, to to speak the truth of what we of what we see. Yeah, yeah. And that doesn't in any way um, uh, negate the grace that. Nope. that you're ultimately hoping to to illustrate. Um, I mean, of course it doesn't. Again, I mean, this broken world is the only place that grace does its work. <laughs> um, and so um, there we go. Well, um, I was really interested in you. Philip Yancey wrote that, that lovely afterward to the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there were, you know, there were, about 10 things in his afterward I wanted to talk about, but, but uh, for the sake of time, I'm just going to uh, direct our conversation toward um, the question of precision mm. and writing. Um, and that, um, that Wangren has always resisted um, precision. Um, he says, um, and this is Yancey quoting uh, a letter from uh, Wangren. Precision has become nearly morality, he wrote me, referring to the precisions of objective observation, analytic theologies, intellectual persuasions. He sought instead to draw the reader into another world as suspension of disbelief, carried more by music and lyricism than by sense and reason. And I love this. A writer, this is quoting Wangren again, a writer hopes for the obedience of a good reader who says, I will enter this world a while, however different it is from my own more familiar expressions of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, you know, I, I, I can't decide what to think and feel about, about the things he's saying about precision because I, I value precision. Sure. You know, and, and when I teach writing, I try to get people to be precise. Yeah. And one of my frustrations, you know, I, I love Wangram, but I do get a little frustrated with this, his, you know, imprecision sometimes. And so the floor is open for discussion. 
Yeah, I'm not sure what to make of either. I, I think there's there's different ways you could see this. There is a sort of a mathematical precision in a formula, right. mm-hmm. and um, you know, in in a in a mathematical formula, the the goal is there's only one way to interpret it. I, I, I do teach, in addition to teaching literature courses and writing courses, I actually also have a PhD in computer science, and I teach a lot of computer science classes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm currently teaching a Tolkien class, and I'm currently teaching a computer science class. And, and <laughs> one of the things I have my students do is is describe things in natural language, but then give it in, in the formal, and I say precise, the formal precise mm-hmm. um, language of, of mathematics. And the idea is that it's unambiguous. There's no room for interpreting it in different ways. Um, mm-hmm. we, we want to, as much as possible, get rid of the, the ambiguity. And, um, and I don't think art works. I don't think art is intended to work that way. I, I, I'm not saying that art doesn't have meaning. Um, but I, I think, um, among other things, it should have many levels or many layers of meaning. Mm-hmm. And that it has, in some sense, um, not just the ability to to mean something to us, to, to mean something, but it has the ability to mean something to us. Mm. You know, can you say more about that? Say about one more sentence about that. <laughs> there, there, there's a couple different questions uh, that you can ask about literature. You know, is not only what does it mean, but what does it mean to you? Mm-hmm. What does it mean today? What does it mean in in this culture? So again, I'm not trying to say that that meaning of words is entirely subjective, um, but that there is both a, in what you might think of as an objective meaning, but also a lot of freedom to enter into it with our imaginations, to apply it in different ways, to be moved um, mm-hmm. in different ways. Uh, you, this, the same story without changing its, its meaning mm-hmm. might mean some, might, might move you in very different, equally true ways then it moves me and it might move me in in a different way six months from now or three years from now than it did six years ago or three months ago. Um, And I think something like the goal of mathematical precision is, is to remove that, that element. So that's what I think. And that's what I wonder if, if, if what they're getting at is there, you know, again, if you, I think, I think the passage you just read mentions an impressionist drawing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And and you can enter into an impressionist drawing with your imagination in a certain way, seeing some things that aren't there. Mm-hmm. Or or seeing some things that are there. It's not even that you're seeing things that aren't there as much as your 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 mind is filling in what's there, but not what is not explicit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so there's um, room that I think that approach leaves room for the reader to enter into the story with his or her own experience, his or her own imagination um, and apply it or, or to his or her own life. Yeah. In new and it takes a lot. So, so for a writer who's interested in conveying truth, if that's a, if that's the right way to put it, that's a risk, right? Yes. To, to, to open up your work to a reader's interpretation, understanding subjective experience. That's a risk that you take as a writer. If you are trying to convey a message of whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's also the only way to convey anything in, in writing that is really going to, to stay with that, that person is as, as they, in other words, uh, maybe, okay, I'm, I'm overstating my case to say it's the only way, 
but as I invite as, as as I invite a reader in to experience, which they might experience in the wrong way or, or not the way I'm I'm thinking about it, that's the only way to to um, through a story to convey what I hope to convey. It's it's a it's just sort of the the catch twenty two of sure a writer. Yeah, exactly. When I mean, when, when I'm teaching writing, one of the things I, I want to tell the, those in my classes is don't overwrite or don't overstate or don't over yeah. it might even be best to say don't over explain mm-hmm. um, leave leave tr- trust your reader trust your reader to be able to work through the metaphor work through the imagery uh, or even or even just listen to the story itself without explaining what the story means yeah. Um, most of the Bible works that way. Most of the Bible is narrative and it's rarely explained to us by the authors of the Bible. Right. The authors of the Bible right. rarely. Think how, yeah. What's that? I was going to say the authors of the Bible rarely stop and explain what the narrative of this particular story of, of Abraham yes. or Moses or David means. They just, yeah. they tell you the story. But think how much time, preachers spend in those parts of the Bible where it does explain, right? I mean, where, where you've got, we love Paul, yeah. you know, thankfully here's somebody who's going to, you know, speak in some, some, you know, give me some propositions I can, I can think about instead of stories that I've got to wallow around in and hope for the best. Uh, I, I think a lot and I often recommend, um, and, I'm, and I'm, I would guess you have two Madeline Lingles walking in water and, yeah. and, uh, and her um, memoir, which is very, very much about writing. She also talks about trusting the story Mm -hmm. Um, and her metaphor actually is that, that writing and trusting your story is like that sort of active faith of stepping out into the water of walking on water. Hence the title of the book Um, Mm -hmm. that you're trusting the truth in the story to go where it needs to go without you controlling it and thereby also trying to control your readers. Yeah, that is absolutely an act of faith. Um, okay. We're running out of time, but I do, I do want to hear you talk a little, I'm I'm really interested in this this fact that you are a computer science professor and a creative writing teacher and a uh, teacher of literature. How do those two sides of your work inform one another? Um, there's certainly creativity in both of those. Mm -hmm. Isn't, is not clear to me whether they, in, in some sense, inform each other. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is a structure or, or uh, in, in creativity, like a narrative has a, a story, has a structure. It's creative and there's a lot of freedom in where that goes and a lot of freedom in writing. But it, it does have a, a narrative structure and a narrative logic. Um, I My area of computer science is generally been dealing with spatial and geometric problems. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that when I'm, when I'm writing something creative, whether it's a narrative nonfiction essay or a story, I, I do often enter into it with a, that sort of spatial sense. Like I can picture almost the, like the narrative flow. I, I can uh-huh. see things like that, which I think helps me yeah. as a writer. Um, but it was really, uh, for me, not so much these two things coming together as, as I guess, a passion to t- things that I cared about. I did graduate yeah. work 
at Cornell University in both computer science at Old English, Old English language and literature. Uh-huh. And the, um, the job prospects were somewhat better in computer science <laughs> in the mid 1980s uh, than they were um, in literature, especially for someone interested in medieval, medieval yeah. literature. Yeah. So I ended up getting the PhD in computer science, but sitting on my dissertation committee was an English professor who really had no mm-hmm. idea what my um, dissertation was about, but he was simultaneously advising me in translating some old English language literature, reading medieval archaeology, medieval history, and, and writing my first novel that got published about two years after, mm-hmm. after my PhD in computer science. All my graduate work in English resulted in a couple novels uh-huh. Uh, being pu- published as well. Right. Well, all right. Um, that that kind of was my question. Are these two things complementary? Are they just two two things that you do? Um, I, I I think there's a sense in which they're complementary, but um, I, I also think that it would be so hard to unravel yeah. how they how they um, interact, how they impact one another. I mean. It, it's a little bit maybe like the work that would unravel how did Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's friendship impact each other's <laughs> writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's no doubt that it did, but the answer of how and exactly where is, would not be a simplistic one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, last question, Matthew, who are the writers who make you want to write? You know, there, there are several uh, writers in, that, that are or late writers who were in the Chrysostom Society, whose works I really admire and who, who as people, really ins- have inspired me. It's not just their books, but it's them as people. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I would certainly aspire to writing something of the beauty and profundity of the Book of the Dun Cow yeah. or the Book of Sorrows. Um, you, uh, I, I love as a narrative nonfiction writer, I would aspire to the works of, uh, to the, to the essays of Wendell Berry. Yeah. I think Wendell Berry is a very beautiful, thoughtful writer. And at, at his best, when he's least didactic is in some sense, when he's mm-hmm. most profound, yeah, um, sure. when he is a poet, when he, when his essays are coming out of that poetic spirit that he has uh-huh. as a poet, uh, yeah. certainly um, Tolkien, and, and and I'm not sure I would say Norman McLean because he's it's really just one work of his. But I, I think a river runs through it. It's such such a beautiful fine piece of of literature that if I could write one novella like yeah. a river runs through, I would have felt like I had invested my life, invested <laughs> invested my life very well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Eugene Peterson, I guess the late Eugene Peterson is also one whose, whose um, spiritual theology is, uh, I find so, so beautifully written and also so moving and so insightful that if I were to really invest the next 15 years or 20 years or lifetime in, spiritual theology, he would be the one who is, I, would, I think I'd be most inspired as a writer yeah. to, to emulate. Yeah. Yeah. His, his work makes me want to go make something. Yeah. 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 He takes creativity so seriously and takes art yeah. um, so seriously and it so deeply informs how he communicates 
theology and spirituality. Yeah. Well, Matthew Dickerson, thank you so much. I, uh, I hope a lot of people read this, this book and, and discover new depths in Walt Wagram thanks to this, uh, this work that you've, you and your friends have done. Yeah, thanks for having thanks me. For I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the conversation. Right. We should sit down sometime when we don't have to be recorded and, and just have a, a cup of coffee and follow several more of these threads that we didn't get a chance to, <laughs> to follow up that on. That sounds like fun. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com.